welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and today's show is brought to you by WarbyParker.com. Get a free five-day home try-on. Just go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on the resources tab, and then the Warby Parker icon. Five, five pairs, five days, 100% free. Okay, today's episode, super psyched. Dr. Eric Robertson, who is by far one of my most favorite people in the world, certainly in the PT profession. Um, he is the PT Think Tank founder. He is the director of the Kaiser Permanente Hayward Fellowship in Advanced Manual Therapy in Northern California. He received his physical therapy education from Quinnipiac University and Boston University. He is board certified in orthopedic physical therapy and is a fellow of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. He is a frequent national speaker on leveraging internet technology in healthcare and evidence-based practice. He has authored several web-based continuing education courses for professional associations and several post-professional education programs. Uh, He has a passion for the use of technology in healthcare, as well as co-founder of ptcoop.org, a curated open access collection of physical therapy learning resources. On the personal side, he has the most amazing dog. So why Moraner, if you don't follow him on social media, I highly suggest you do. You'll get great pictures of coffee and his dog, and it's amazing. Okay, so what do we talk about today? Today we are talking about population health, the management of total health across different groups and the life spectrum, why prevention should be a primary focus in healthcare, certainly in physical therapy, how population health addresses important objectives such as health literacy, resource management, and access to care, and much, much more. And we did all of this sitting outside in the sun in Florida at the Graham Sessions. So Eric and I were both at the Graham Sessions about a month ago. I also saw him last week at CSM. It was great. And the Graham Sessions was really wonderful this year. We talk a little bit about that. And Eric also gives us the best advice he would give to himself as a new grad. So stay tuned. That is all the way at the end. Okay, before we get to that again, I want to thank warbyparker.com. Glasses should not cost as much as an iPhone. Their prescription glasses start at $95, including all prescription lenses. All glasses include anti-reflective and anti-glare coating, no additional costs. All glasses include a hard case and cleaning cloth. There are no additional items you'll need to purchase. Required special lenses to see both near and far, no problem. They offer digital free form progressive lenses that start at $295. So if you want to get your five days, five pair free try-on, Head on over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on the resources page in the Warby Parker tab, and get your five free pairs for five days. All right. That being said, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with the wonderful Dr. Eric Robertson. Hey, everybody. We are coming to you live from St. Petersburg, Florida, post-Gram Sessions, and I am sitting here with Eric Robertson, not new to the podcast, so welcome back. Yeah, thank you. It's happy to be back, and uh, I'm excited to have one in person. Yes, I know. It feels totally different. It's totally different, and I have to say, it's interesting you'd say that because I was kind of going through with Julie, who's my intern. She's a physical therapist at Chapman, and she said that her all of her favorite episodes were when they were live or when they were you know with the person sitting in front of you mm. um, so I think there's something there is something a little special to having the person right in front of you versus on the phone or even on Skype but this is um, this is different and and like I said we're 
just post-gram session. So before we get into speaking about population health, which is what we're going to talk about, what was your biggest takeaway from the gram sessions this year? You've been to a couple. Uh, yeah, I've been to quite a few of them. Uh, you know, I think my biggest takeaway this year, well, probably two. Um, one is that we seem to talk a lot about systems and health systems and how we can start thinking in a more systematic sense. You know, um, we had we had a guy come in for a keynote speaker and even he talked about uh, leverage points within like the ecosystems of different industries. And so I think that set the tone for um, conversations throughout the whole weekend. So that was a, a maybe a departure from previous year's conversations. Uh, and then I think overall people were a little bit spicy. They were like revved up. People were... Uh, I don't know if I would say the word irritable, but um, they're vigorous. They're enthusiastic. Yeah. Yes, they're enthusiastic. And I, I, I mean, what I took away most was just the, the group of people that were assembled, ranging from students straight through people who have 60 years of experience. Sure. And it's not often that you can sit down and kind of pick the brain of, who, who both have very, very valid things to say, you know? So it's nice to, to be able to pick the brains of people who have great ideas 60 years apart. Sure. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I've been here enough that I, I know a lot of the older folks. And so um, when I'm at Graham Sessions, I love to go meet the new professionals because I haven't heard their opinions yet. Um, and that's one of the great things is that, you know, it's such a small group that it's easy to share opinions. It's easy to be heard. It's easier, you know, to go explore different new people and their opinions. Uh, one of the students that was here said to me, oh, I talked to so-and-so and, you know, they're like, they're like old. Like I looked at them and I thought, man, that's a dinosaur. But then I went and talked to them and they're fantastic. I was like, of course they're fantastic. <laughs> right, right. And it's kind of like what, what uh, one of the speakers said, and it was everybody has a bias. So you have sure. to face it, acknowledge it, and then I would add, get over it. Right. Um, but we all come in with these certain biases, whether it be ageism or sexism or elitism or wherever it is you're coming from. But it's when you make that personal connection, all of a sudden, it may, maybe it'll confirm your bias, I don't know. But what I've found by and large in the physical therapy world and coming to these gram sessions and even CSM or Next is that you're more often than not proven wrong. Yes, I would agree with that. And, you know, it's always the same thing. When you're, we start talking about uh, sitting here in person, you know, it's the same thing whether you have political, ideological differences. Once you start talking to people and you relate as a human being, then uh, it sets a different stage. And that's just the great thing about Graham Sessions is it's just one big conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something really uh, valuable for the profession. Yeah, I agree. And one of the things that was spoken about during Graham sessions was the idea of population health. So why don't you first, can you first define that? Because I think a lot of people have vastly different definitions of population health. So you spoke about this and in, in the spirit of what you spoke about, what is your definition of population so, health? You know, I guess my, my frame of reference for um, talking about population health is that I work for Kaiser Permanente in Northern California. And so Kaiser Permanente is a health system. Right, and so uh, I don't know that there's one discrete definition for population health other than being concerned about the health of a population, which seems to be nonsensical, like makes sense, right? Um, so population health for me is, um, you know, first defining what kind of population you're talking about and how you want to consider the health of it, right? So, um, you know, I spoke yesterday with Steve Hunter 
and uh, he's from Intermountain Healthcare, and you know he did a good job of uh, trying to give some examples of what would be a population, right? So total knee arthroplasty, all the patients in your health system with that condition could be uh, considered a population, right? Uh, from Kaiser Permanente, uh, that standpoint, you know, we cover four million members in the Bay Area. That's its own population, mm -hmm. right? And so that's the population uh, that you're concerned about the health. Um, and arguably, it extends beyond that for Kaiser, since they have a lot of community-facing programs whose mission is to uh, extend some of the tools and benefits of the health system outward into the community beyond just the members. Um, so really, population health has a lot to do with like defining who your group is. But then it also has to do with um, paying attention to total health, right? And paying attention to um, not just can somebody's shoulder move, right? But how does that shoulder impact their life? How does that shoulder uh, problem or leg problem or whatever it is uh, really play into their health status overall? And so I think there's um, a real focus on the whole person and their health uh, throughout their life and healthcare across a spectrum. Right, so when you're talking about population health, for me, you're never talking about just one service. You're really talking about a healthcare team and management of total health across the spectrum. And and seeing that person not just as a singular diagnosis, bye bye. Right. But rather getting them into your system and then continuing to educate them throughout their course of care and then after, right. and hopefully before. Right. Well, and that's a big focus, right? Because when you're thinking about population health, uh, there's efficient ways to do it and inefficient mm -hmm. ways to do it. And so what's, what's an example of an inefficient way? Well, the inefficient way is to um, not provide services until somebody's already well into developed conditions, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so a classic sort of example would be like somebody, you know, plays football and they're doing, they're doing okay, but they, you know, they tore their meniscus playing football when they were 18. And then their knee kind of gets junked up, it's sore, so they stop being active, they start putting on weight, suddenly they're middle-aged, they're obese, and then, you know what, they have diabetes develop, they have heart conditions that develop, um, and you know maybe it's enough that they don't have to get those things taken care of, and then suddenly one day they have a wound. And they come in, they have a, you know, an ulcer on the heel. And so now you're dealing with this advanced you know, cardiomyopathy, you're dealing with a wound problem, you're dealing with all the you know, sequela from obesity, and that's a really expensive person to treat, right? They're gonna consume a lot of healthcare resources. Uh, it's gonna be a lot better to take that person who had that knee problem, make sure that they get that management ahead of time that, so that they don't develop into severe osteoarthritis. Or that um, you, know, you give them education along the way, like as maybe that obesity starts to creep on, you start to offer them weight management programs and you know, support of the health system in a real easy to access manner so that way you prevent the onset of these really expensive conditions. And I think that's uh, when you look at groups and systems that really focus on population health, by and large, they're always focused on prevention. Right, right. And I also think when people say prevention, that sometimes it could have like the wrong connotation, right? Because you're saying, I hear this a lot. Well. You know, you can't 100% prevent things. So how could you call it a prevention program? Why don't you call it, you know, a decrease the likelihood of getting something program? Do you know yeah. what I mean? So I'm sure you hear that as well. So what is your response to that? It's just sort of playing devil's advocate. Yeah, sure. I think it actually is a decrease the likelihood of getting something mm -hmm. program, right? Because, um, you know, I, I guess if you look at any person in the population, they're going to have like uh, socio, you know, socioeconomic, demographic risk factors for a particular condition. Um, maybe you have really high factors, so you have a higher than normal risk to develop diabetes. So 
okay, that's fine. Let's try to minimize the chance of that occurring. And so it really is like uh, reduce the, the likelihood of this impacting the health system, reduce the likelihood of this impacting your life, uh, reduce the impact of that impacting society as a whole, really. That's what you're talking about, population health. Right. And then the goal of population health is probably multi multifaceted, right? So you have obviously uh, cost savings for a healthcare system and, and you have hopefully a better life, a better lifespan, a better quality of life for the people involved. What other goals do you sort of think about whether at Kaiser or within other programs? Well, one of the things I like about uh, the Kaiser system um, and sort of it's built off of this like capitation model where mostly they're funded through member dues, right? So uh, and people who buy Kaiser insurance fund Kaiser. And the care that they provide then you can consider it's a cost to the system, right? And so Kaiser understands that it's, um, you know, more efficient economically to provide uh, good care once or twice than to provide really crappy care multiple times or to withhold care until it's way too late and you're, you're in really rough shape and then yeah. it's going to cost the system a lot of money. Uh, so, you know, from that sense, uh, you know, I think that it's in everybody's best interest for people to be healthier, right? And so sure. if you're good at keeping people healthy, then you're going to make more money as a health system. Society is going to have more workers because, you know, more productive people in society. You're going to be personally happier. Um, and so, you know, that's where you get to these like fundamentals about the building blocks of health, right? Movement, diet. And uh, you see that through health system branding and marketing. It's, it's inherent as part of that system. And then where, what is the incentive for the member, in, in Kaiser's case, the member or the person within society? to take advantage of these programs. Yeah, well, that's it's all about incentives, right? If you don't incentivize it, who cares? Yeah, so, you know, I think people generally have an innate sense that, you know, an innate incentive to want to stay healthy and to move easier and to, you know, function at the highest level that they can. Um, So I don't know that you can provide somebody the incentive for health. Um, But what you can do is make it easy to access those services and to make it as inexpensive as possible. And that's where you see care innovations like um, accessing your care on your phone, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, the benefit of a great big health system is they have some resources to put in technology. And, you know, I've literally had doctor uh, visits in my bathroom. Right, so um, I don't know if you want to be publicizing that. Well, you know, the only reason it was in the bathroom is is it had the best light. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, you can consult with your physician right through your phone, right? Mm. So you book the appointment on the online app. Uh, they schedule a time, and you know, boom, pops up video visit right there. Right? right. So an incentive would be easier access. Sure. Right. Yeah. Because oftentimes. And I know I'm guilty of it. Like, oh, I'll, I'll make it. I have to make an appointment. I have to make an appointment. And you put it off and you put it off and you put it off. Um, but I think if I was able to say, okay, I can, I don't have to take the two hours out of my day to go to the doctor to wait to get all this stuff done, but rather I can do, I can get it done in a half an hour um, through something more accessible. That's certainly a big incentive to be proactive about your health. Right. And, and, you know, even as a healthcare provider, you think we're sort of like a little bit on the the forward leading edge of that curve about wanting to seek care when you need it. Um, But, you know, maybe sometimes that's a a false assumption because physical therapists, maybe we feel like we can manage things on our own and maybe we're some of the last people to seek care. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly how I've been. Um, 
But what I've noticed uh, being a member at Kaiser for a couple of years now is that that's changing in my head, right? I'll start to have minor things and I'll reach out to my phone, send a text or a message to the physician and like, boom, then the pharmacy mails me something or, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. really easy to access care that keeps things at a minimum. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, okay, so when it comes to the patient or consumer or client or whatever you want to call them, the individual, sure. let's say, let's call the them an individual. The person receiving health care. Yeah, the person receiving health care. So we hope that there is an innate sense of wanting to be healthy, hopefully. Um, providing easier access to said care using different forms of communication and technology. What else can people do to have an impact on their their population? You know, I think health literacy falls into this as a pretty strong topic, mm-hmm. right? And um, uh, what I've noticed is that uh, inside of this Kaiser system, there are multiple touch points and opportunities to improve health literacy, right? When you go sit in the waiting room, there's not just pictures on the wall. There's informative plaques, there's brochures, there's pamphlets, and they all tell you about things, right? And it's kind of funny, like if you go to like the internist office, you'll see a lot of things related to like cardiac health, monitoring cardiac symptoms, right? How to stop smoking, how to check your feet for diabetes, right? If you go to the orthopedics office, it's different, right? It's a little bit sports related kind Mm -hmm. of information. It's like foot health information, um, you know? And so as you go to these different stations uh, within KP, they they have different sort of information that they're giving you. Um, After you go to a visit, they send you a big email and the email is like, as much as you want to dig in, they have links to information. And so um, you really get to, you see them giving patients a lot of opportunities to learn and improve their health literacy. Uh, even in physical therapy, you know, it's, um, you know, we're well beyond, here's your, you know, uh, sketched out little, uh, you know, handout. Your stick figure handouts? Right, yeah, we're, we're, after, <laughs> we're past that now. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, you talk to the patient, you figure it out, and uh, you hit the button on the printer and you go over and you get like, uh, you know, an actual book. Like it's a customized book that's all printed out for somebody, and you send the PDF copy of their ebook, mm-hmm. to, you know, and um, it's phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, what a difference technology makes. So, we've got, like I said, we add health literacy and and uh, to this mix. And what I'm hearing is things that Kaiser is doing now. Kaiser's huge; they have m- many more funds than a lot of um, smaller practices. Um, even with Intermountain, like that's a big. That's a big PT group, you know, big healthcare group. But the things that I'm hearing from you seem to be things that even me, being a solo practitioner, can implement in my practice. Sure. Yeah, so improving, you know, giving your patients opportunities to improve their health literacy, phenomenal. Easy. Right, you can do that, and it just takes a little bit of planning, a little bit of choreographing, uh, paying attention to the branding and professionalism of your materials to Mm -hmm. make people kind of want to uh, hold them in some value in their mind. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. That's that's something that's really great, right? Um, but I think probably if you were looking at what's the what's the link here? What what can I take away from practice and population health at Kaiser uh, as a private practitioner or wherever the heck you work in physical therapy? Um, how can I mimic the benefits of population health lenses? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say the thing would be to conceptualize yourself as a primary care provider. Right? And so when you call yourself a primary care provider, 
you're assuming a responsibility for more than just that physical therapy impairment that you might have identified, right? Your medical screening, your uh, differential diagnosis on a scale that examines like, their total health status. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the key point is to take that lens, that, that real in the weeds focus that you can get into with physical therapy and pull out of that and see how something impacts somebody's whole body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, and also how is it, like you said in the beginning, how is this affecting their life, their livelihood? Perhaps relationships with loved ones, relationships with colleagues at work. All of this can certainly play into using the example of the person with the, the knee pain in high school. All of that can certainly play into what happens down the road. Sure. You know, so if you start to pull away, you start to, I, I hate to use the term, but to give up, if you will. Right. You know? Yeah, I mean, you know, here's another great example. I was mentoring with one of the newer residents the other day, and uh, they were treating a patient who had, um, you know, some chronic pain that was lingering after an ankle, arthur, uh, I think, arthroscopy. And they were really focused on the ankle range of motion, right? Because the guy had limited dorsiflexion, and he would complain about pain, and he would complain about not being able to golf, and, um, you know, that he really had poor stability in the ankle. And, you know, she was in really in there, and, and the resident was like, doing ankle mobs and, and stretching this and stretching that and giving them ankle pumps and, you know, exercises. And, and she was really doing a good job getting the motion of the ankle back. Um, but what was the problem is, you know, she wasn't really getting a carryover in the guy's function. And so you just have to step back a little bit and say, well, hold on. Ankle motion is only one little tiny bit of, you know, maybe it's the focal point for what this man's problem is, but let's rank his problems and his impairments per his whole health. Right, and so then you assess his balance, and his balance is horrible. Right, he literally can't stand on one leg for any period of time mm. on the inside, on the involved Sounds side. Sounds like me right now. Right, very similar. Right, uh-huh. guys, no proprioception. You know, yeah, obviously some impaired like neural imaging of, of his of his injured foot, which probably helps explain some of the chronic pain. Um, but then you also look at the context that this is a you know 68 year old male. Right, and so now you have somebody with uh, you know decreased ankle stability, horrendous balance and they're elderly, this man's a really significant fall risk. Mm -hmm. And so now, from a priority standpoint, that's the top priority for this individual, right? Ankle range of motion is way down our list now. Right. Because, great, we got the ankle range of motion back, he falls over, breaks his hip, maybe he's dead in a year. Now you're in big trouble. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, what you hear then is this person who has really impaired balance, um, not being able to participate in an activity that involves a lot of walking, which is phenomenal for their health. Of course. So now you have a different lens and your management strategy changes a little bit. And now maybe it's not an outpatient ortho, you know, patient who has an ankle limitation. Now this is more of a geriatric patient who's at a fall risk and has recently, you know, experienced a reduction in their aerobic activities. Mm-hmm. Right. So we now have you're a diff- at a cardiovascular a in- risk. Yeah, right. You're at so, a neurological risk. Right. And yeah. so we have a, an entirely different, you know, care management paradigm now for how we approach this person. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that's a great example and hopefully that gives some people out there listening, physical therapists who don't have the opportunity to be in a large system, these independent practitioners to kind of re- refocus maybe their the way that they're approaching their patients and the way that they're they're thinking about an injury sure. and how that injury goes beyond range of motion or strength, which is not to belittle that part of it because it's certainly important, but you have to 
pull away and get a wider a wider angle. Right, and then and then that's when you're treating somebody's total health. Yeah. Right, which is in one of my building blocks that I mentioned for what is population health. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so. Take, looking at things at a big with a big lens, accessibility, technology. What are what else are we are we missing anything here from the physical therapist or the healthcare practitioner standpoint on population health? Um, you know, I guess what I would say, you know, we're, we're kind of hinting about this is that um, there's maybe a slightly different practice style for providers that are operating in a population health system, right? Um, because the focus um, for your management decisions, and you know, let's face it, like the financial structure in which you work always impacts your clinical reasoning. Yep. Um, so the motivator is resource management inside of a health system that's focused on population health. It's not generating billing, right? And so the resource management then is how do I provide the most efficient care um, at the right time? And it's very rare for somebody to come into physical therapy evaluation at Kaiser and leave with like uh, you know a plan that's going to include physical therapy three times a week for four weeks. It just doesn't ever happen. Mm-hmm. Um, what's more likely is for somebody to come in and go leave for two weeks to do all the exercises that they learned in their first session and maybe attend a knee class. Got it. So they're they're adding on. I don't want to say adding on, but they're improving their PT experience by group group classes or right there's like additional touch points besides just one-on-one care right so it could be group classes say in the middle of these things they're confused about one of the home exercises they send an email it's a contact point we can email them back try to Mm -hmm. explain the exercise Mm -hmm. or schedule a video visit Mm -hmm. and so in Mm -hmm. between the two visits have a little 15 minute video visit that by the way doesn't cost a patient anything so there you are uh, making incentives by making care easy to access And Um, less expensive. Right. And so management decisions are very, very different because now you're primarily, um, I guess, a consultant. You're you're getting, you're helping the patient uh, enable their own pathway to health, right? And so I love the empowerment in it, you know, the self-efficacy that's like grounded in that that management philosophy because you're really like having the patient come in and say like, hey, listen, this is how you're going to get yourself healthy versus like, yeah, you got to come see me. I'm going to do the magic manual therapy tricks on you. There might be some magic manual therapy tricks early on, but you know, only to the point that it's going to enable function in a pain-free manner. And so, what about the the therapist or the 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 clinic that, if they had people only come to see them once every couple of weeks, it would be hard to continue to run a clinic. Sure. You just then have to flood yourself with lots of new patients, or is your is your management model obviously a little bit different yeah you know it's it's really a hard thing to think about how somebody who operates in a fee-for-service model mm-hmm. can start to function um, in that way and to make those management decisions because it would be really risky to say suddenly to all of your patients I'll see you only in two weeks and I mm-hmm. normally might have been seeing them two times a week right. for, for those two weeks so you know, I, th- I think there are opportunities, though, to try to innovate how you're interacting with your patients, right? So, you know, there's people here at Gram Sessions that uh, talk about health literacy being a component of their practice, mm-hmm. right? And consulting with people via, um, like, several avenues of communication, specifically about health literacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who really focus on prevention and on wellness. Mm-hmm. And those are components of your practice. And I think if you start thinking about those things, it's a natural uh, sort of conclusion to understand that you should 
maybe innovate some financial models. Mm -hmm. And I really think that's what has to happen because yeah. as you know, we move to value-based healthcare and healthcare that's going to be paid more on outcomes, it makes sense to get off of the fee-for-service thing and to start innovating ways that you can create lasting relationships in which you're, you know, you're, I don't want to use the word friend, but you're like a coach. You're alongside your patient as they mm -hmm. improve their health and maximize mm -hmm. their health. And that is part of our practice. You know, that that is part of the APTA and that is part of our practice is to help with wellness and prevention. And so it's, it's not something that we shouldn't be doing. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, I guess the other thing too to kind of maybe talk about is the fact that it is such a different sort of management philosophy for... Um, for people in the health system but I think once you've worked in that health system and you've learned how to do that sort of like clinical reasoning then it makes everything else different right because you never lose that focus on somebody's total health once you start thinking that way once you start practicing that way right and that's it's really a mindset nice. shift yeah and that's why you know we really um the health system, the, some of the resources that we have, some of the benefits of it is that we're able to create really rich experiences and residency and fellowship training inside of a health system, mm. which makes them unique in my mind. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, I think it's definitely a mindset shift for people that can be a little uncomfortable. Yeah, it certainly can be, right? you know, especially, you know, you think about the, what's the predominant clinical reasoning model in school, in PT school. All students, so you know, you, if they're not challenged on it, they're going to default to uh, see that patient two to three times two a week. Two to three for times a week, week. Right. for four to six weeks. And that's what you write on all your soap notes in school. Yeah. And like, you know, you go to clinics that aren't health systems, and that's what you're doing in those clinics. And then you go to a health system, and you know, you write down you're going to see the patient for three times a week, and suddenly the manager's in your face, like, what are you doing? Is this yeah. person dying tomorrow? Like, right. why are they so severe <laughs> that they need this much right. of our resource? Well, and, and then it also makes me think about the healthcare team. So, what about the physician that maybe you work with let's say that let's say you're not in a, in a big system and the physician writes two to three times a week for six weeks and then they tell the patient you need to be seen two to three times a week for six weeks sure right in the health so system do they have, don't say that right but not everyone's in a health system right so how do you have that conversation not only maybe with the patient but also with the physician to say you know I, I I did my evaluation and these are my findings and it seems to me that this patient would do really well with maybe once a week. Yeah, and or I think twice that's, a week for a couple of weeks then once a week and do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that's a question that is beyond just health system versus not. Yeah, right? Because I think, you know, even in my time when I was in private practice, um, you know, in traditional fee for service models, I would get I'd get irritable when a physician wrote and tried to tell me how many times I should see a patient, right? What they thought the, the frequency should be. Mm -hmm. uh, I would get much happier if I just got the, you know, the standard, you know, evaluate and treat, mm -hmm. right? And that's acknowledging that we're a professional. We can make better decisions about what our profession deems somebody needs mm -hmm. than somebody else. Uh, and so I think right. that's, the, that's the line on that one. Yeah, so. yeah, I agree. And, and But you see it a lot. Oh, you still do, and I, I, I would fight back. You know, be be um, be an advocate for the profession and for your own practice. When you if you have a, a referral source that's giving you those kind of uh, those referrals where they're very prescriptive, um, then fight back on that. Yeah, don't be afraid to have the conversation. Right. But oftentimes people are afraid to have the conversation because then they're going to lose the referral source. Yeah. Well, you know, talk about efficiency, yeah. right? If you go back, if you say, you know, hey, listen, referral source, you're you're making me mad because you're telling me what to do, and you get in an argument like that. Well, now it's like your well, position that's, versus that's, their position, yeah, right? That's not a good so, way to approach it. Right. So, but but if you go back and you say, hey, listen, you know. Um, let me save you some time here on these referrals. You, you know, unless there's some specific reason, 
Um, you know, and if there is, give me a call and talk about it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just write down like a Valentry. We're going to figure out the efficient way for this. You know, patients have higher and higher copays. So we like, you know, I think your patients overall will be happier coming to us if we give them the most efficient plan possible versus like, you know, the one that you're kind of locking us into with these numbers. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful way to go about it. So thank you for that. All right. So we have time for a couple of more thoughts. So mm-hmm. After you did your talk on population health, there is obviously some back and forth. What is one thing that you took away from some of the comments that people made? And do you think it will change the way that you view the population health system? Um, you know, I guess some of the comments were, uh, some were inquiries about how we do this or how we mm-hmm. do that. Um, and you know, one of the one of them was a private practice owner who got up and said, you know, hey, we can we can compete in this um, this arena. And he proceeded to describe some progressive things that they installed in his practice that were working. And I think that's a good takeaway, right? Mm-hmm. So if you start to learn about how population health works in health systems, what can you mimic from those health systems? Mm-hmm. Um, might be a good good way to approach it. And and it seemed to be working in a couple instances. Um, and then there was another health system uh, representative in the audience who got up and made a comment and, and he focused in on that word compete and he didn't like it. And I thought that was a really good statement because mm-hmm. he really talked about partnering. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, everybody's got the same mission. And so you're not necessarily competing for resources, competing for patients. It's like it's it's like, you know, thinking of like your your backyard football team is trying to compete with the NFL. Right. Right. It's not. But you're both still after a good time. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. You schedule the football game at a different time than the right. NFL plays. Uh, right. So, you know, kind of take that, that metaphor and, and move it on to, to this. You know, wh- how can you work alongside the health system? How can you leverage the resources in that health system in a community and the natural, uh, I think, drive for these health systems to improve the health of a community? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are, the, what are the points of leverage that work for both people? Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I also agree with you on the competition. I mean, there are plenty of people to go around. Sure. I mean, there are no shortage of people in this world who can use physical therapy, who can utilize population health principles, and who can stand to be healthy. Sure. You know, so I think that there's plenty to go around. And it's likely that whatever health system there is, they don't have enough physical therapists. Yeah, you're right. Right. Even in really high-performing health systems, they're Mm -hmm. not staffed up enough with physical therapists simply because there's just not enough of them. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's never a job problem when people are graduating right now. Who knows what the future holds, but for right now, now we don't have enough of them. You know, in fact, our health system's projecting a a hundreds-level big deficit in physical therapists within five years. Wow. Wow, that's a lot. And I have to say, the other thing that I took away, even just from this conversation here, is if you're not within a large system like a Kaiser or something like that, and you are that private practice, know your population. Know who your population is, and then you can start to come up with systems that may be mimicking some of the stuff that we spoke about today that are relevant to your population because every population could be different, you know? And like Mike Eisenhart, um, who has been on this podcast before, he sort of contracts out with different companies in his area. I mean, that's his population, you know? So your population might be a large corporation. Sure. It might be, you know, it might be your local PTA. 
Yeah. Well, you or know, your the, local high school. The other thing that defining a population is helpful for is it helps you assess your performance within that population, mm-hmm. right? Because maybe your outcomes for patients with knee arthroplasty are really different than your outcomes for patients with, you know, X or Y, of right? Low back pain. Yeah, and or, or yeah. maybe um, your population, you know, could be a region, like a phys- physical region, sure. geographic region. Sure. Um, so. You know, I think defining populations is also really important in terms of outcome, which mm-hmm. is related to quality assessment. And so it's going to give you feedback into your practice at a, maybe a different nuanced level. Yeah. And, and it also shows you where are you adding value, maybe where you're not adding value. And are you putting more of your resources into an area where you're not adding value because the outcome measurements aren't showing it? So then you don't have to spend all this extra time and energy and money on something that's not giving the results that you want. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So last question. Um, what would you, so we we're roughly the same age. So what would you, knowing what you know now, what would you say to yourself as a new grad from PT school? Wow. That's a fantastic question. I know. Um, well, first I would remind myself as a new grad that PT is a really small world. Right. Instead of behave yourself. Yes. Oh my God. That is such great advice. Because believe me, it will come back around. It certainly will. Karma you know. can be a bitch. Yeah. Well, yeah, just in that end, you know, looking around Graham sessions, I noticed yesterday there was, um, I think, five of my previous employers in the audience at Graham sessions. Oh, how funny. Which is probably a really high number. That's a lot. Right. Yeah. So the, the, you know, maybe that speaks to the fact that I had some good mentors along the way. Yeah. Uh, that they're all here, but um, it also speaks to the fact that it's a good thing I left on good terms. Yeah. You didn't. Burn Um, But I think I would tell my my PT school self that um, physical therapy practice uh, is a spectrum of quality, right? And the the experiences, the high quality experiences, can really be transformative to you. And so to seek them out early, because I think I was content to. not seek them out or I thought that they were unattainable or that they didn't exist and it wasn't until I was you know serendipitous enough to like stumble across jobs that that really changed me um, and then that elevated my practice and it's not gone back right and so um, I had an experience where I worked as a contractor in the military health system and that that first foray into this like fabric of professionals who were well trained who had incentives for training um, there was a collegial relationship with physicians, so I got to learn from the physicians, and you know I started to understand health as uh, you know, and maybe conceptualize physical therapy as part of the health system, and and you're a partner in health really, and that was a real poignant moment, and uh, I would try to go tell my graduating self to seek that poignant moment out a little sooner. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, thank you so much. Where can people find you? Um, you can find me in a bunch of places. So um, I'm Eric Robertson on Facebook or Twitter. Um, you could also follow me at PT Think Tank. Um, and so that's the blog that we run for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also follow me professionally uh, at Twitter, KP NorCal PT, uh, which is the Twitter handle for our website for Northern California Kaiser Permanente Graduate Physical Therapy Education Program. So we have the Manual Therapy Fellowship and our brand new orthopedic residency. Awesome. Well, thank you for 
sitting down. Thank you for all the good work you do for the profession also. Yeah, well, same to you. You know, I think that your uh, your podcast uh, serves a real valuable uh, role in the profession and you've been doing it for a long time and you're always a professional and, and you know, having gone through this podcast, I'm not sure if it's a great one or not. But of course I had, it is. But I had a great time. <laughs> I had a so, great time and yeah. I was not fishing for a compliment on that. I just want to be very clear there. Well, you put but... the pressure on me that we needed to have <laughs> a great like, podcast. Thanks, see yeah. ya. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot, Karen. See you later. Bye. Right, so. um, but anyway, thank you so much for coming back on. This was fun and Unfortunately, we both have to leave. Well, at least you get to go to San Francisco. I have to go back to New York City where it's going to be cold till April. Yeah, so. it's not as warm as you think in San Francisco right now. So Oakland's pretty rainy and cold. It's not as cold as New York. It certainly is. <laughs> I, I don't miss the Northeast. You grew up in New Jersey. It yeah. is cold. So I'm sad to leave Florida, but I just want to thank you again. And, and a big thank you to the Graham Sessions for hosting another great meeting. And I hope to make it next year as well. Um, and to everyone listening, thank you so much. And I hope you have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. <laughs>